Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, hello, Ecclesia. Pastor Ian Graham here. And what we have today is a re-record of a sermon I was overjoyed to be able to give in person as we met outside at the park this past Sunday. And, uh, you know, due to some technical difficulties, we get to record it here in my office. And so coming to you, I want to continue this series called Personal Jesus. We're looking at how Jesus and his resurrected life meets us with very real and very personal uh, outworking of this resurrected life, offering his life to us. And so through this series, we've been looking at different angles of how Jesus' resurrected life doesn't just impact the world, but impacts our lives individually. And uh, last time we met in the park, uh, one of our academic, your interns, Danielle, taught. It was a beautiful teaching uh, leading us through the scriptures. And I got up after she was done to bring us to the table. You know, we, we conclude every service by coming to the table. It's the focal point of our service. And though that looks different now, you know, whereas pre-pandemic we would have fresh baked bread in one cup, you know, the, the symbolism matched with the, the deep sacramental meaning and the action that we were undertaking. And things are different now. We have those little plastic cups where you, you peel the top off and there's a wafer and then you peel the other layer and there's the juice. It's a, it's a bit strange. But as we were coming to the table and I'm just trying to offer words, I looked over our con- congregation and I couldn't figure out is it just because we're, we're all wearing masks and uh, is it because people are squinting in the sun? But as I looked over our church, I just had this sense that, that there was maybe a collective malaise, maybe even a collective sense of, of just kind of meh. And I, I didn't really have a name for it then, but I just, I felt like the Spirit of God may be showing me something, you know, pastorally over our church. And then, you know, over the, the uh, days that followed, I had conversations with people, um, you know, around the country, different pastors and leaders that, that I'm friends with, and just kind of what they were seeing and experiencing. And, and then I had conversations with people in our church, and I just saw this as a theme. But again, still didn't have a name for it until... I read an article by a social psychologist named Adam Grant. And Adam Grant wrote an article in the New York Times, and he wrote about this term called languishing. Now, I'm familiar with the word languishing, but I'd never heard it applied in a clinical psychology setting. And Adam Grant writes about languishing. In psychology, we think about mental health on a spectrum from depression to flourishing. Flourishing is the peak of well-being. You have a strong sense of meaning, mastery and mattering to others. Depression is the valley of ill-being. You feel despondent, drained, and worthless. Grant goes on. He says, languishing is the neglected middle child of mental health. It's the void between depression and flourishing, the absence of well-being. You don't have symptoms of mental illness, but you're not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. Languishing dulls your motivation disrupts your ability to focus and triples the odds that you'll cut back on work. It appears to be more common than major depression, and in some ways it may be a bigger risk factor for mental illness. Now, I don't know about you, but that term and that description put a name to something that I'm seeing, something that you know, 
personally I am experiencing at times, this idea of languishing. And so today I want to offer a word of hope, a word of encouragement for those who may be languishing. Now, perhaps you don't find yourself languishing in regards to your faith. And I know as we talk about languishing, you know, so much of what I'm seeing is, you know, people feel like God's at arm's length. People feel disconnected from the church. I think that's been a common feeling. Now, perhaps that describes you. Perhaps it doesn't. Maybe you find yourself languishing as it, you know, as it regards to the church in general. Maybe all the stories about celebrity pastors, you know, that's an oxymoron if you've ever heard one, failing. Or the church is often misguided associations with politicians or the way the church treats certain segments of people in our world. And maybe, you know, as you've kind of gone through the pandemic, you're just seeing all these narratives pop up and you're just like, what are we even doing here? Perhaps you're a person of color and though you narrate your experience expecting that that people in the church would be the first one to, to honor and to listen and to respond to your experience, perhaps you've found nothing but explanations and you know reasons for why you're feeling the way you are that don't line up with your experience of reality and you're just saying like, okay, what are we doing here? And we've been in this series talking about the personal Jesus. And today, no matter where you find yourself, whether you find yourself languishing in the way that Adam Grant talks about, whether you find yourself just languishing in respect to the church, or I want to offer a third category, maybe you're doing awesome. Maybe as you hear the sound of my voice, you, you have this collective sense, summer's coming, There's this, I have so much meaning in my work, maybe you just feel like life is good and we need to stop focusing on all this depressing stuff. You know, no matter where you find yourself, I think that the story that we're going to read today, Luke 24, has such a profound word for each one of us, an urgent word, as we see the shape of the hope that Jesus offers us. And what the life that he has for us means for us in the here and now. And so we've spent some time in Luke 24, and that's where we'll land today. And it's a chapter that we opened on Easter Sunday. And the thing I love about the scriptures is that if you've been tracking with our teaching, even though we're going to teach from the same passage relatively, that, that even though you may have read a passage of scripture, it can speak to us in a new way. You think about the way that your favorite albums kind of evolve over time. And it's not that the, the album that you love changes, it's just that you hear different things. And that's what's so often going with the scriptures. Or when we look at a great piece of art, we can look at it from different angles and see different things. And so today, we're going to look at uh, the, a, a depiction of the resurrected Christ in Luke chapter 24. So I want to invite you If you have the scriptures in front of you, turn over to Luke 24. We'll begin in verse 13. I'll read this story over you, and then we'll unpack it a bit. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Now we pick up our story on the first Easter Sunday. 
The risen Christ meets two disciples who were walking away from Jerusalem after spending the Sabbath there. And the text tells us that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. As Jesus approached, he asked them, what were you talking about? Now, it's kind of a funny story that the one who approaches these two disciples and asks them, what are they talking about, is the one that they're going to try to explain all that's happened. And what we find is they don't know the whole story. And Jesus asked them, what were you talking about as you walked on the road? And notice in verse 17, it says they stood still, their faces downcast. Now this story in Luke 24 is so beautiful in large part because of its pace. The pace is slow. The story unfolds slowly. The two disciples at first don't recognize Jesus. And it's only over the course of a day that we'll see that they actually come to recognize Jesus. But also this pace that they're walking. Kosuke Koyama talks about a three-mile-an-hour God. And this is the pace that Jesus often reveals his life to us. But as Jesus asked them, what were you talking about as you walked along the road? Notice, they cannot keep walking. They stop, overcome with sadness. Their faces downcast, as Luke describes. And then they proceed to tell the story of what they have experienced from their own perspective. Now, in counseling circles, it's often helpful to help people to, to frame the story and actually to create some distance from their own experience with things that happen. It's helpful, for, especially in conflict situations, for people to own the story that they have experienced, but also to acknowledge that they could be wrong about their experience. And so one helpful phrase that's used in different circles is to say, this is the story that I'm telling myself. The story I tell myself is this is what I have experienced. And what that does is it it creates ownership of the story, but it also creates a bit of distance. And so in many ways, Jesus is asking these two disciples to tell him the story that they are telling themselves. Now, we know that this is the risen Christ, that he has the full picture of the story. But Jesus isn't interested in just conclusions. He's not interested in just solutions. Jesus asked them to narrate the story from their own experience, to tell him the story they are telling themselves. Now, you could ask yourself the question, why would Jesus bother with this? Is he just teasing them? He knows the truth. Can't he just tell them? Can't he just hurry things along? But again, the pace of the story the, the way the story unfolds has so much to say about what the story is actually about. Jesus asked them to narrate the story. Tell me the story that you're telling yourself. And then he walks alongside them. The first step as we talk about what it means for hope to be manifest in our lives, the first step towards hope is not that our circumstances instantly change or even that we instantly understand our circumstances. The first step towards hope is Jesus himself coming to walk with us and talk with us and inviting us to tell the story as we have experienced it, to pour out our hopes and dreams before him. This is a beautiful story. Let's keep going. And so, as Jesus asked them, tell me the story, the disciple answers, about Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) Jesus is like, oh, tell me more about Jesus of Nazareth. 
They say he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Verse 20. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Notice that that tone in verse 21. But we had hoped. It goes on. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Now as these two disciples narrate their story to Jesus, the story that they are telling themselves is that all of their hopes had been dashed. Again, verse 21, but we had hoped. We had hoped, but we don't hope now. We had hope, but that hope is gone. And they say that we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Now, when these two disciples say redeem Israel, they're looking back to the story of Israel's original redemption by the power of God, the story of the Exodus, when Moses, as the prophet of God, directly confronted the imperial powers of Egypt with the greater power of the God of Israel. And God demonstrates his, his power in these series of judgments, slowly and artfully undoing the imperial uh, power and the propaganda of Egypt. And culminating in the Passover and and God making a way through the Red Sea. This is the story that the people of Israel had gathered in Jerusalem on this very weekend to celebrate. This is the festival that these two disciples are walking away from as they walk on the road to Emmaus. This is the hope of Israel, their longing that God would do it again in their day. But from their vantage point, Jesus did not confront the state, the imperial power of Rome, with the power of God. Rather, he was executed by the power of the state. Jesus didn't confront and undo the imperial powers. He didn't restore Israel. Rather, he was just another in a long line of failed messiahs. One who had a lot of promise and hope, but ultimately was shown to be just another casualty to the powers that be. The story that they are telling themselves now is that Jesus was a good prophet, a good teacher, but that any rumors that something else might be going on, as as we're discussed on Easter, were just too, too good to be true. But notice, as Jesus hears their version of events, as he hears the story that they are telling themselves, in verse 25, Jesus tells a different story. Verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with the Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As far as Bible studies go, friends, this one was pretty strong. Jesus unpacks the story that God has been narrating from Genesis all the way through the end of the Old Testament. Jesus tells them the story that is ultimately about him. This is a beautiful Bible study, and you know we could all long to be on the inside of this. But you notice where Jesus starts. For these two disciples, the suffering was the evidence that Jesus was not the one that they had hoped for. 
And when Jesus tells the story, the story that he is telling himself and the story that he is telling these two disciples, Jesus doesn't minimize or deny the suffering. He starts with the suffering. And he carves the hope that God has been unfolding through the patient telling of the narrative of the scriptures. He carves this hope not by denying the suffering, but right through it and out of it. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now we reach the moment in the story where it looked like this encounter might end. The two disciples arrive at their destination. And it looks like Jesus is going to go on further, but they beg him, please stay with us. This is in line with first century expectations of hospitality. The stranger who has accompanied them on their walk must be welcomed, must be attended to. And so these two disciples, not knowing again that this is the risen Jesus, but not really concerned with that in this moment, make preparations for a meal. And they set it before the risen Christ. And it's only as they sit down to the table that things begin to unfold rapidly. Jesus the guest becomes Jesus the host. He takes the bread that has been prepared. He blesses it. He breaks it and he gives it to them. And as he hands them this bread that has been set before them, their eyes are opened and only then do they realize that this is Jesus. And Jesus vanishes from their sight and they remark, were not our hearts burning within us? This is an incredible story. And I want to remark upon two barriers to hope that are overcome in this beautiful story. And then I want to invite us briefly into a couple of habits of hope. So first, a, a few barriers to hope that we can see from our own world sort of transposed into this story. First, we see that these two disciples have no category for a hope beyond their own imagining. They, you know, the first barrier to hope for many of us is that we are practical atheists. We believe that God loves the world. We believe that, you know, at some level that he made it, that he's, you know, taking care of it. But, but ultimately, we're either practical atheists or practical deists. We think God is far off in our day-to-day living. Or we think that God's just concerned with the big matters of our world. And what we see from these two disciples is there are rumors swirling around. The women have gone to the tomb and did not find the body. They, they say they saw angels, but these two disciples aren't sure. And for many of us, we have this sense in our life and in our world that that God, yeah, though he loves us, though he wants good things for us, is ultimately we can't trust him with the day-to-day moments of our lives. Ultimately, the the day-to-day moments are up to us. We have to take the reins. We are, are in charge of our own future. But what we see from this story is that the risen Christ meets these two disciples along the road, meets them where they are, and walks with them. And that's so much the point that this story is making. 
is that Jesus comes to us no matter what our circumstances are. And when we think about the the claims of our faith, the claims of our faith is that Jesus suffered on the cross, gave his life for the world, poured out himself unto death, went down into death, and conquered it, conquering death by death. And he is risen on the third day, the resurrected Christ now reigning over all things. That, that his life that has been won on Calvary, that he's been resurrected to the right hand of the Father, that this eternal life has been extended to each and every person, and that we will receive his life into eternity, that we will be with him in eternal life and joy, and that that life that is cast into eternity actually it starts right here and right now in our lives. These are stunning claims. And for many of us, we sort of hold those claims at arm's length. We live our lives not in light of eternity, not in light of the incredible claims of our faith, but as if that is a life that will only begin after our death. But Jesus, the resurrected Christ, comes and walks with us on the road. He's saying that this life is available to us now. But for many of us, we don't experience the hope that God has for us. Because we, we believe the lie and the story that we tell ourselves, that that, that hope, that, that Jesus coming to be with us, walking alongside of us, asking us, tell me the story, is just too good to be true. We discount the incredible nature of our faith, and we act as if God, you know, really doesn't exist. And so the first barrier to our hope is that we are practical atheists. Second, the second barrier to hope is that we're too busy. Now, busyness and hope may not seem like they're at odds with one another, but I wonder, what would have become of these two disciples in our story if they'd not made the time to ask Jesus to stay? As it seemed as if Jesus was going on, what if they would have simply said, okay, we've We've had a long day. And as we've seen, these two disciples were so overcome with grief that they had to stop walking to tell the story. What if they just only saw their own experience, their own needs, and just said, you know, it's been a long day. We've had a long walk. We know that it's culturally expected that we take care of this stranger. Let's just give him some bread and say, you know, farewell. Thank you for the great Bible study. Good luck to you. But out of their sadness... They serve, they invite this stranger to stay, to sit down to a meal with them. And it's then, and only then, that Jesus, the guest, becomes Jesus, the hope, or the host. And I wonder how many of us miss the hope that God is inviting us into because we're simply too distracted, too busy, too frantic running around that we never have time to take account and to hear the voice of God. And friends, when we ask Jesus to stay with us, even as we see in this story, even in our disillusionment, our disappointment, our deconstruction, our languishing, he not only joins us at the table, but he becomes the host feeding and sustaining us. And as we close today, I just want us to offer a couple of habits of hope. And as we see from this story, Jesus meets us where we are, and he narrates his own version of the story. So the first thing that we do is we listen to the story. Jesus' response to the disciples' despondency and to their small imaginations is to tell the story 
to tell the story from Moses and the prophets of God's love for humanity, of his care and his rescue, that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. And for many of us, we lack a biblical imagination for the hope that God has for us because we don't know the story. And friends, I said this to the people that were gathered on Sunday. I want to say this to you. So often we hear this as a criticism. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't know the story. I, I don't want you to hear this as a criticism, but as an invitation. Jesus in our disillusionment, in our despondency, in our grief, is wanting to tell us the story anew. He's waiting there. And so often, all we have to do is turn to him. Now, I'm not going to say that the Bible is an easy book. I actually think it's a quite difficult book. But I do want to encourage you. There are so many ways in our content-saturated culture to hear the story. There are apps that will literally read the Bible to you. There are so many great teachings on scripture, you know, the things like the Bible Project, you know, sermons that you can find that are unpacking these stories. And, and though content will not shape our imagination, I think in the ways that we often think it will, when we saturate our minds and our lives with the Jesus story, he will narrate a new and a better hope to us than the one that we would narrate for ourselves. And so, so often the first step is to simply listen to the story. And such a big part of that, I want to encourage you, is whatever format that we're meeting in over the next several months, make time for the teaching. Make time to hear the words that God, that that I'm trying to discern that God is speaking over our community. And I want to say that clearly. I don't speak for God. I, I try my best to discern spiritually what he might be saying to us, to me, uh, to our community, and to, to allow that to shape us. But make that a priority in your life. Listen to the story. The, that's the first habit of hope. The second habit of hope is to serve even when it doesn't feel like you have it all together. These two disciples extend hospitality to this person that they thought was only some random stranger. They say, "Don't are you the only ones who doesn't, doesn't know who's, what's happened in Jerusalem over the last couple of days? And they make this invitation, even in the midst of their own pain, even when in the midst of when all of their hopes and dreams, it seems like, have been dashed. And I know for so many of you, as we talk about languishing, for so many of you, you just don't feel the energy. You don't feel the momentum in your faith. To, to make your first impulse to want to step towards others. But what we see through this story is that often when we serve out, uh, even in the midst of our own great grief or great disappointment, what we find is that Jesus is there, that, that we don't find Jesus by coming to a more uh, intellectual understanding. You know, we don't fill up our lives with so much intellectual uh, knowledge and content that all of a sudden we have it together and we can serve out of that knowledge. No, what we find is that as we step with Jesus, as we sit down to the table with him, as we set the table for others, that we find Jesus there. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 25. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Ecclesia, we find Jesus in serving. Now, this isn't some, you know, a compulsion to burnout. This isn't a compulsion to deny what's going on in your life and just minimize it, repress it, shove it down, and serve to, to the point where you are at your wit's end. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is so often we think that we're going to come to this point where we understand enough or we feel good enough to, to love others. But, but biblical faith is always showing us that Jesus is on the road with us. He is walking on the road with us and that as we take steps with him, that he is forming life in us. And so serve even in the midst of disappointment. The last thing, I want us to be a people who are have an imagination and who pray for miracles. Again, Jesus comes to these two disciples. They've heard rumors of, of you know, maybe something else is going on, but they have no category for it. And I want us to be a people who expect that God might do something unforeseen. And I, I love the Christian Missionary Alliance has this phrase where they say, um, they say anticipation without expectation. And so it's, it's showing up, giving God our attention and giving God our, uh, our, our longings and our hope and allowing him to have our hope. Paul says in Romans 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering and persevere in prayer. And this is so much the shape of the kind of miracle-shaped imagination and hope that God is inviting us into. But so often, we miss the hope that God has for us because we don't expect that God can do something that's beyond our own possibility and our own expectation. But what if we trusted God for more? What if we trusted God with the little moments of our days and also with the big things that we can't even see a way towards hope for? These are three habits of hope. Listen to the story, serve even in our disappointment and disillusionment, and be a people shaped by an imagination for miracle, for God to break through in life that we can't foresee for ourselves. And friends, as we wrap up today, I just want to say the beauty of this story is that Jesus comes on the road to these two disciples, Jesus, the risen Christ, and he walks at their pace, the three-mile-an-hour God. He is with them in their languishing, with them in their disillusionment and their disappointment, and only slowly and patiently does he show them, does he reveal to them that he is, in fact, the risen Christ, the one who has conquered death, that the suffering was not ancillary or that it was not somehow dashing their hopes, but it was the way towards hope. And I want you to see that God, no matter where you find yourself, is with you, and he is asking you to tell him the story. Tell him the story that you are telling yourself. And in response, he will simply walk with you, sit down to a table with you, and will tell you a better story and offer you a hope that you never could have foreseen. Friends, he is with you, even in your languishing. He is with you to the ends of the earth. This is the price that he has paid. This is the victory that he has won because he loves you so dearly. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.